Hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. Uh, I'm Dale and um, this is just a quick bonus podcast. Um, so I finished my semester at Ryerson and uh, just like last semester I wanted to post up my final essays for you guys. Um, so I'll start with this one. This is my ancient philosophy course. Um, I wasn't sure if this would be totally relevant to Real Seekers so I was kind of debating whether I wanted to post this up or not. Um, but I figured well it, it kind of touches upon uh, time. Uh, so we, we were reading Plato's Parmenides uh, book, ancient philosophy book, and I did my essay on the appendix to deductions one and two in the second part of the, the book, and that kind of relates to the philosophy of time, which I covered in my cosmological argument part two. Um, so I applied that interpretation to my exegetical essay of Plato's Parmenides in this appendix. Uh, part and yeah, I figured I would I would share it with you guys just in case anyone's interested, but um, Yeah, it, it might be of interest to you guys. So yeah, I figured I would do a quick show on that half an hour or so um, after, Beyond that I have other shows. So I've got my other two essays that I want to post one is uh, a Argument for God from beauty from my philosophy of aesthetics course um, I did kind of work on that. So I want to post up the essay from that as well as sharing some sources um, and then for my philosophy of religion course, I did uh, the argument from divine hiddenness. So some of some of you guys would have already heard a great uh, show. There was a show on SNS about divine hiddenness, and an even better show on uh, the proselytize or apostatize show, where it was Andrew Knight and David Johnson versus David Russell and David Pullman on Schellenberg's argument from divine hiddenness. So J.L. Schellenberg is a probably the world's expert on the argument from divine hiddenness uh, for for atheism. And uh, they were kind of going over his mainstream argument, his conceptual argument. I'll, I'll put a link to that in the sources. I'm not going to retread over the excellent ground that David Pullman and David Russell have already done on that front uh, in refuting this skeptical argument. Uh, but I wanted to add my own contribution because I sort of focused on a, a lesser known argument by J.L. Schellenberg, which is his argument from analogy for divine hiddenness. So that's kind of, you know, I'll, I'll post that up you know, next week or something like that. Um, but it, it's basically, he says, well, look, a loving, we would expect a loving mother to reveal herself to her child in certain situations. And that's analogous to God and God seekers. We would expect God to reveal him, a loving God to reveal himself to God seekers in situations that are analogous to the, the mother and child. Um, so yeah, um, look forward to those. Um, outside of those solo shows, I'm also working on my cosmological argument. Should have part three be posted up in the next couple weeks, I'm hoping. And uh, I'll have part four. It's, part four is already done. I just got to convert it to a video. And that's on my premise too. Um, and then hopefully by the end of the summer, I will definitely have part five up and be finished once and for all with the cosmological argument. Outside of solo shows, uh, I've also been invited uh, to four different shows so far. Um, so. Skeptics and Seekers, I'm going to be debating Val, um, Val the Atheist, who's really smart, one of the smartest atheists, um, on the issue of free will. He's a compatibilist. I'm a libertarian free will person uh, proponent. So yeah, we'll be going back and forth on the Skeptics and Seekers show sometime in June. Um, secondly, I was invited to David Russell's proselytize or apostatize show again to discuss the issue of apologetics and culture, which uh, coincidentally will be the topic of a conference that he's trying to organize once COVID is, is, you know, the COVID restrictions are gone and that sort of thing. 
Uh, Andrew Knight invited me to his podcast, Proscenium, or and or Still Unbelievable, do a show on when is it okay to use violence, he wanted to do it on this topic, when is it okay to use violence against governing authorities, both from a secular standpoint and from a Christian standpoint. That's not something I'm an expert in, and I, I've had some struggles this summer, especially with all the violence from Black Lives Matter and Antifa, that kind of forced me to kind of sit down and, and the fact that the liberal governments just said have at it you guys are good this is a summer of love you want to kill people go for it you want to set buildings on fire that's up to you and the cops aren't going to do nothing to help people and I, I was appalled by that sickening behavior by a government and that really shocked me so it kind of forced me to, to think about this issue a little bit and yeah I've still got some issues I'm struggling with. So yeah, me and Andrew are going to kind of go back and forth and try to figure that out a bit. Um, I also got uh, invited to do um, one of my fellow classmates in the Masters of Philosophy program. He has his own philosophical group or society of about 6,500 philosophers and that sort of thing. And he invited me to come on his platform and do some kind of joint venture. Um, still working out what, we, what we're what we going to do, if it's going to be a lecture on my part or more likely I'm, I'm trying to aim, maybe we could schedule a debate um, on that front. So, so yeah, I'll record that on my end and post that up for you guys, whatever we end up uh, doing there. Uh, so that's exciting for me. That's something different, doing sort of a live speaking event. Um, so that'll be great. Um, oh yeah, I'm also hopefully going to be having Dr. Class uh, Cray on my show. Um, he's one of my professors who taught me philosophy of religion. He's a world's expert in that field specifically. And we haven't worked out all the details as to the when and what the topic's going to be, but it's going to be a great show. So uh, yeah, a apart from that, I've got, about, I've got some other guests in mind that I'm going to start contacting in June to see if there's interest in them coming on. So... Yeah, I'll keep you guys appraised as that those details come in. But yeah, with that said, let's get into this um, ancient philosophy essay and, and what I thought about Plato's Parmenides, specifically the appendix uh, to deductions one and two. So this is a very small portion. And just for context, so Plato's Parmenides um, is probably one of Plato's, it's Plato's toughest book that he wrote out of everything he wrote. Um, it's the most metaphysically challenging and in laying out uh, specifically addressing his theory of forms and how what are the consequences or implications of the theory of forms and there's some debate in scholarship uh, Plato's platonic scholars are kind of divided as to well what is the point of the of this whole book because it just seems that Plato kind of makes uh, through his character Parmenides this Parmenides was a philosopher from an earlier time he just makes mincemeat out of uh, Socrates, who challenges him and brings up the theory of forms and kind of exposes huge problems with the theory of forms, and they don't get resolved in the end. So people, well, did Plato really think these were problems? Is he trying to make a, a point? Um, uh, most scholars, like Mary Louise Gill, for example, think that, well, Plato's trying to... Plato believed that you can't read a book and learn. You in order to be educated properly, you have to you have to engage in dialogue uh, and be trained by a teacher, a proper teacher, namely Plato. Come to his academy and get get trained. Then you'll get all the answers. So that some people, some scholars say, well, this is Parmenides was an advertisement for his school. Bring raise the problems, get people scratching their heads, and say, well, you want the answers, 
get educated by me, come to my school. Um, so, so yeah, there's different interpretations as to why Plato wrote this book in the first place. Um, but my focus in my essay was on the second part of the book. There's two main parts. The second part of the book is basically where Parmenides um, is going over with his interlocutor, and, and he's got a series of eight deductions to each of them in pairs. So, okay, let's pretend that the one does exist. What are the implications? And then he, that creates a problem. Okay, secondly, well, what if the one doesn't exist? And then he goes, what are the problems? So the appendix is kind of like a ninth deduction that kind of attaches itself to deductions one and two. And the point of deductions one and two, so the, the first deduction um, was about this, the platonic form known as the one. And it said that, kind of deduced in the end, that the one was nothing at all. It, it cannot exist. It's nothing. And then the second deduction, it concluded the exact opposite. It proved, well, the one must exist. And not only that, it's everything because it participates in the other form of being. Um, so those are the two contrasting deductions. And the purpose of the appendix is kind of saying, Parmenides, Plato has Parmenides say, well, how can we make possibly make sense of that? Ah, maybe with the invocation of time, it might make sense because the logical law of non-contradiction says, well, as long as you're not the same, you're not the same thing and it's opposite. You're not F and not F um, at the same time and in the same sense. And Plato in the appendix is saying, well, maybe it's not at the same time. Maybe at one time it's not. And then at a later time at T1, it, it becomes it then it participates in being and, and it is and that sort of thing so it first is not and then it is um, at a later time and that's what Parmenides is exploring in this appendix specifically um, Plato has Parmenides raise the issue or the problem of uh, temporal change or temporal becoming and you know he uses an example of a, an object picture an object like a ball that's uh, changing from being in a state of rest to going into a state of motion and from that state of motion back into a state of rest or something like that. All of this supposedly occurs in time. So, okay, there's no contradiction. At one, at time one, the ball is at rest, in a state of rest. At time two, the ball is in a state of motion. At time three, the ball is again in a state of rest. Um, but Parmenides looks closer at this and he says, okay, great. Uh, I want to raise the question of the transitions. When exactly within time do these transitions occur? When exactly? What temporal quote-unquote instant is what the Greek says or um, the sudden, the temporal sudden that this ball transitions from one thing, one state into another. When is that precise moment? And, you know, he says that there has to be this, this transition point, temporal point, where it's not yet changing, uh, and then it turns, ch begin, changes into a moving thing, or changes into a resting thing from a state of moving. And basically the consequence of this line of reasoning is that th there must be this quote-unquote instant where the object is no longer either a moving thing and yet it's not also a resting thing either um, and Parmenides 
says that it, it's even worse than that. For, forget about the instance from it being a resting thing to a moving thing. When is the moment or the instant in time where it goes from being a resting thing to changing or becoming a moving thing or and vice versa? Um, so it's not even between these two end states. There's also this issue of when does it even start becoming a, a you know, a moving thing, you're going into a moving state. And basically, Parmenides, in his words, he argues, quote-unquote, look, whenever being at rest, it changes to moving. It must itself presumably be in no time at all. There is no time in which something can simultaneously be neither in motion nor at rest. And he's saying that in this instant, basically what he's saying here is that in this instant, while it's not in a state of rest, that was the temporal moment prior to this instant right and it's not it's not yet changing in a state of becoming or changing a moving thing yet so there's this moment in between states and he, parmenides is saying well that must be in no time at all then you know this instant where it's neither at rest and it's neither at motion and it's not even changing to become in a state of motion. So this is what the problem of the appendix is. It's important to understand this curious distinction. This is an exegetical essay, so you have to look at the original Greek, and there are differences between the terms to be, which is inai in the Greek, and to come to be, which is gignesethe. Uh, I don't speak Greek, as you can tell, but these are two distinct verbs in the Greek. So, so Parmenides is arguing that in order to explain the change of the form of the one, for example, first being in a state of not being, comparable to being a ball in a state of rest, and then being in that state of being for the ball in that state of motion, uh, one must introduce the concept of becoming in between these two moments, or these two states of affairs. Um, and then further, there's this instant even in between this, the state of not being and the state of becoming. Um, so there's an instant in there and that's in no time. Hopefully that makes sense to, to everyone. Yeah, just, just to quote from Parmenides. So Parmenides says, look, quote unquote, whenever the one changes from being to ceasing to be or from not being to coming to be, isn't it in between certain states? And that it, is, it neither is, nor is not, and neither comes to be, nor ceases to be. So this is, in a nutshell, is the problem that the appendix is tackling. Okay, so let's get into some exegetical interpretation. What, what might Plato mean when he's talking about this issue? What, what is uh, the temporal instant? How can we interpret what that is, this instant uh, of transition that leads into the, the state of becoming? Um, okay, so the first view um, is, you know, Sir Alfred North Whitehead um, believed in there are certain temporal instants or something like that might be best understood um, as taking place as chronon, something called quote-unquote chronons. So these are kind of discrete atoms of time, little instants of time, um, or uh, perhaps better interpreted as little intervals, the minimal interval of, of time that represents an instant, and he called these chronons. Um, so this is kind of a temporal atomistic view. So maybe the this instant of transition that Plato's talking about, he's referring to a chronon. Um, there's a chronon um, in between these, you know, to plug this gap between the state of 
not being or the state of rest and then this becoming state um, before you actually become whatever it is you're in motion or um, you know the the form of the one has being or something like that so it's you know first uh, the form of the one is not uh, sorry has not is, is in a state of not being it doesn't exist then there's this chronon then there's it's in a state of becoming then there's another chronon then uh, it's in a state of being so th this would kind of fill out this uh, the whole process of change but unfortunately this this doesn't work in my opinion I, I, I kind of tackled this in my cosmological argument part two the chronon view so one of the major problems here is that okay well this if they're discrete chronons if each temporal instant is a discrete chronon that makes it kind of like a movie a film right it's it's discontinuous it's reality temporal reality is disjointed just like each frame of a movie there isn't any continuous dynamic enduring through time there is no temporal becoming it's just we have this frame this chronon at this minute then another chronon at another minute and you know it kind of uh is problematic well how are these connected why do we have this illu so-called illusion of temporal becoming and you know us enduring through temporal change and stuff like that um so these are some of the issues with this view and finally we, we also encounter kind of like a zeno's paradox you know his stadium paradox and that sort of thing where you have this infinite regress of infinite dividing lines well you there's always going to be, if it's temporal instance, there's an infinite number of temporal instants and or intervals and that sort of thing that one can make um, in between the, you know, the each state and that sort of thing. So, yeah, you'd have to kind of argue that the chronon is the minimal temporal interval, but that just seems kind of arbitrary. But, yeah, I, I think it's pretty obvious that um, Plato doesn't have in mind... Um, you know, through Parmenides here, he's, he's not having a chronon in mind um, when he's discussing this problem. He, I think he sees uh, time as an A theory of time. It's dynamic, it's we endure through time, and it's continuous. It's not jerky or disjointed like a movie frame with, you know, separate frames of the movie and they're totally, their existence is totally independent of each other. No, that, that's not what Plato has in mind. So another view to approach this possible solution um, in terms of the instant of transition or instant of change um, is the B theory of time or the timeless view altogether, right? Because doesn't Plato through, you know, Parmenides um, in the in the book itself, he, he even says, look, quote unquote, and whenever being in motion, it comes to rest, it must itself presumably be in no time at all. These are the exact translations of that Plato provides to us. So maybe it's a, advocating a timeless view. There is no such thing as time. That this little instant is totally outside of time itself. And some people argue this, like Michael Friedi, for example. Um, he has kind of a qualification about becoming. What does that mean? And, and he thinks, well, really nothing, ne nothing ever becomes something else. Change is totally illusory. It's just an appearance. So something has this pro something is the one has this property or whatever, um, but then it's uh, it takes on appearances. So that's the change that we think uh, is happening in time. It's just a difference of appearance, but that that doesn't help 
solve the issue, you still have this temporal issue of, well, when does this appearance take place? So Michael Friedy's interpretations don't work there and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, he, he has that, he would take a timeless view in terms of the instant. When it takes on this appearance, it, it's literally outside of time. It has no temporal location nor temporal extension. And it's at this point that a given object can participate in the forms and that sort of thing. It becomes the actual forms themselves and that's how they're related. So it's kind of a view on how the relation, participation relation would work between objects and forms. Uh, you know, so how can a ball, an object, relate to the moving form or whatever it is, motion form, uh, versus the rest form, or how could other forms relate to each other? How could the one not have being and then all of a sudden participate in another form, the being form, the form of being, and therefore become something? So there's problems with this timeless view because, again, to be timeless means that you have no temporal dimensions. You're, you have no temporal extension. Right, like a temporal point is an unextended instant. Intervals have extension. They endure for a period of time, a fraction of a second, or one hour, or one month, whatever the interval is. But additionally, they also have no temporal location. And this is where I think this view doesn't fit what Plato has in mind in terms of temporal instance, because it doesn't make sense. It is temporally located. It comes after time one, when a thing is in a state of rest, uh, or, you know, the, the form of the one is in a, a state of non-being, so to speak, and then there's this instant, it has a temporal location after time one, you know, that's time two, and then time three, it starts becoming, time four, it has become, it has being, um, and that sort of thing. So there's a temporal location for this temporal instant. So I don't think that the timeless view makes sense um, or it can work in terms of what Plato has in mind. Um, one final type of view um, that might be uh, applying here that Plato might have in mind is, okay, well, maybe there's some kind of notion of a hyper-time dimension, an extra-time dimension. And this hyper-time dimension would be orthogonal um, to our own temporal dimension. Um, so kind of like a rectangle, you know, it's like a right angle totally intersecting that line in this hyper time dimension. And yeah, that's one way it would say, okay, uh, when he says this temporal instant is in no time, well, maybe that just means that it's, that's because it's in a hyper time or something like that. Um, but hyper time dimensions don't make sense. So in the first place, the, the forms... Um, would have to be embedded into this hyper-time dimension and not timeless, as traditionally understood. And I think it really just kind of kicks the problem down, because there would be presumably instants of change within this hyper-time dimension, where, you know, at one point it's not intersecting, at another point it is intersecting our dimension of time at that instant of transition, uh, and then afterwards it's not kind of thing, because there's temporal becoming temporal sequence even in this hyper-time dimension. So I, I think you it's really just kicking the can down. It doesn't solve the problem, it just gives us more of a problem. Uh, the same problem, or even more of a problem, because now we have to explain uh, the instant of change in this hyper-time dimension as well. And finally, I, I just think that this hyper-time dimension interpretation is totally anachronistic. 
Um, you know, it's this is a modern conception. I don't. It didn't exist in ancient Greece. Uh, wouldn't have been an interpretation that Plato, in all probability, would have been able to think of or would have been aware of. And we get no indication of hyper time dimensions in the Parmenides at all. So, um, yeah, that for them it's timeless and one temporal dimension that's all the ancient greeks understood so this this explanation is anachronistic anachronistic it doesn't work um in my opinion so yeah the, what would be the best interpretations then what do i think works so in the first place i have to admit that when we say no time uh, scholars like mary louise gill for example say that well that's not necessarily saying it's no time at all it's not timeless it could be interpreted as saying you know colloquially that Oh, it happens in no time, you know, a very, very fraction of a section, a second or whatever, we barely even notice it. You know, it's kind of like how we, just as an idiom, say like, oh man, we'll, we'll get it done in no time. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be done quick, very quick is what we're trying to say. Um, so that's another interpretation and that sort of thing. But here's my interpretation. So here, here's what I think Plato might have in mind with the instant of change. So there's a difference between uh, what's called metric time and absolute time. And this goes back centuries. Isaac Newton made this distinction. That, you know, um, uh, Galileo had his own notion of ga Galilean relativity. Again, I got into all the details about this in my cosmological argument part two uh, series where I discuss the philosophy of time and argue four arguments in favor of the A theory of time uh, and then four arguments in favor of the B theory of time and uh, show that the A theory of time is very, very probably true. I think I got 82% proven on that front. Um, so yeah, check out those show if you want those kinds of details. But uh, in terms of this exegetical essay on Plato's Parmenides, I'm applying this difference between metric time and absolute time and I think this is what Plato has in mind. He's When he says it's not in no time at all, he's really trying to say that this temporal instant, it's out of metric time, but it's still within absolute time. Um, so just to kind of quickly go over the, what does this mean? What is this distinction? Um, so metric time is kind of where we see time as a metrical concept. It's kind of like a geometrical line composed of points or instants and or intervals that we can draw on it. Um, so this is kind of how the modern world in the 21st century, most scientists see time in this four-dimensional space-time geometrical line. Um, and this is how time is kind of depicted for us, um, for advocates, uh, atheists and skeptics really like this. Um, whereas absolute time exists on its own terms this is what time really is it's a separate thing totally separate from space you know there is no such thing as space time there's space and time um you know it's an independent dimension um and that's uh, kind of that goes hand in hand with that a theory of time and that distinction when it comes to relativity I think that there is absolute time, there's absolute simultaneity and that sort of thing. Time itself is not relative to motion in any way, but metric time or measured time uh, can be and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I, I think this is my interpretation that I'm offering here. I think that Plato in the appendix is trying to say, look, um, 
the instant of change or the instant of transition, you know, that, that temporal sudden when something begins to change, takes place in absolute time, but it's not in metrical time. That's why we can't identify the exact instant of when it takes place. And this notion of absolute time, you know, famous philosophers of time, uh, people like Dr. Henry Bergson or Rom Hare, have rejected, completely rejected, any mathematical conceptualizations of real time or absolute time, um, where they try to refer to specific measured intervals composed of temporal points and that sort of thing. Instead, they just claim, look, absolute time is essentially duration. From a purely ontological perspective, it is pure duration in essence, and there are no temporal points or that sort of thing. Uh, so this means that time as duration is ontologically prior to any and all metrical concepts, intervals, or points that we want to impose onto it as secondary construction, quote-unquote secondary constructions. Um, according to Hare, he says, look, uh, all secondary constructions do, they only make sense when one has already adopted a model of time as a linear point manifold. Uh, onto which the expressions that occur in temporal talk are to be mapped. Um, so he's just saying, look, it, it only makes sense if you assume, a certain assume, like a lay skeptic, that time is this geometrical line, this mathematical conception, um, and then it's got points and intervals. But that's just ridiculous, says Hare. Uh, that, that thinking of time as a line with points and intervals that can be drawn on it that's a secondary mathematical construction that has no basis on reality itself. And it's the same solution that we offer with Zeno's stadium paradox and, and um, distances, right? It, it's ridiculous. No, nobody believes that there's a real contradiction here and that there's an infinite number of points so that it's impossible to run halfway across the stadium. We see football, uh, soccer stars, uh, sports stars, uh, traverse more than half the stadium uh, easily every night when a sports game is on. So we know that this kind of reasoning is stupid. It, it's wrong. Um, even if we don't understand why, um, we know that it, you would know that it's wrong. And what Harris, what the answer here is that I covered in um, Cosmological Argument Part 1 when I covered Zeno's paradox, stadium paradox against the infinite distances is no, look, the, the distance is finite, and that finite distance is ontologically prior to any and all divisions that we want to draw onto that, you know, intervals or points that we want to map onto that finite distance. It's the finite distance, it's finite, and, and it already exists. It's prior to any mathematical conceptions that we want to uh, make for that distance, and it's the same here with time. Time is ontologically prior as pure duration. It has no points or intervals and that sort of thing. Anything we want to draw on it or, you know, represent it as a line, that those are just secondary mathematical conceptions that have no basis in reality. Um, so that, yeah, that basically um, what I'm trying to say here is by applying this understanding of time, the que Parmenides' questions regarding when is this instant of change has no applicability in reality in, because time is not composed of instants or intervals. It's not a line. 
Um, so, you know, temporal becoming or ch temporal change doesn't proceed by instance, and it's a ridiculous question. So um, I think that Plato is kind of trying, the answer that Plato was trying to, wanting to give or hint at that he would teach you if you came to his academy is uh, he would just say, no, time is not composed of instance. Time is just ontologically prior, absolute time is ontologically prior to metrical time. And so your, your question doesn't make sense because uh, the instant of change doesn't take place within metrical time, to which Parmenides' objections only apply to metrical time, not to absolute time. Uh, so that's my interpretation of what I think Plato has in mind here. Um, what, and this makes perfect sense. It absolutely works. Um, but is this really what Plato had in mind? Would, isn't this anachronistic? Would he have understood A theory and B theory of time? No. Uh, would he have understood um, the difference between metric time and absolute time? Yes. I think yes. And we can prove this because... In the first place, uh, metric time goes all the way back to Aristotle, a student of Plato. He understood about metric time or measured time, and um, he actually uh, wrote about this. Uh, also, additionally, Plato, we know, distinguished between metric time and absolute time. So these, these concepts do actually date back and were known by these ancient Greek philosophers. And Plato uses the Greek word none. Uh, translated as now versus the word he uses translated in this appendix as instant or the sudden, the temporal sudden. So the, Plato is distinguishing the now, the present now in absolute time, I would argue, from the temporal instant, which is a concept of metric time. So that, that uh, there is this basis for it. Why would Plato use different Greek words for now versus the temporal instant or sudden? They should just be the same, um, but they're not. And I think that that difference is grounded in the fact that Plato has in mind a difference between uh, the now of absolute time and the temporal instant of metric time, to which all of Parmenides' objections about, well, when does this, there's an infinite number of, infinite regress of points and all this this stuff would apply only to the instant of metric time, but applies not to the now of absolute time. Uh, hopefully that's clear. Um, additionally, there's, there's also evidence from Plato's other writings, such as the Timaeus, where Plato actually defines time as being dynamic in nature, constantly changing, and it's constituted by the celestial body movement or wanderings of the planets and stars in outer space, uh, for, for Plato at least, you know, he has a primitive understanding and that sort of thing, but he does have this fundamental insight that time itself is ontologically duration, grounded in motion or changing of the things, uh, not simply as the measure of motion, which Plato translates as the numbers of time. So Plato does make this distinction between the quote-unquote numbers of time and time itself, which is defined as celestial body movement or wanderings, as Plato calls it. So yeah, that, that was shocking to me. It, it does seem, you know, Plato uses different words, but he does seem to have this distinction of absolute time and metric time in, in his mind. So uh, yeah, just to quote him in Plato's own words in the Timaeus, he says, quote-unquote, the sun, the moon, the five 
other stars, these are called wanderers, or planeta in Greek, and they stand guard over the numbers of time. And so people are all but ignorant of the fact that time really is the wanderings of these bodies, but not some number that measures this movement. Um, incredible. This seems to back up my interpretation, and I think if we apply this to the append to this interpretation of the appendix in his book in Plato's book on Parmenides, this is really what he's saying. He's by saying it takes place in no time at all. He means it doesn't take place in uh, metric time, but it still occurs within absolute time where these questions simply don't apply. And just to uh, quickly clarify, so when I, when I say it, it doesn't take place within metric time, uh, again, metric time isn't some kind of extra dimension of time, like a hyper dimension of time or another dimension of time. It has no ontological status at all. It's just an ab a mental entity in our brains, you know, uh, kind of the way some people see mathematical objects as just not, you know, from an anti-realist perspective. So uh, that's what I mean when it's metric time. It isn't, it has no ontological reality. Uh, it's just all in our heads. Uh, it's a secondary mathematical construction that human beings impose on real time, on absolute time, and use as a helpful way to understand or to conceptualize time and that sort of thing. You know, we conceptualize it as a line and we can make points. Here's 1945, here's 1985, here's, you know, 2020, stuff like that. So that's, that's what I mean. It, it's this abstract or mental conception. That's, that's what metric time exists. And Plato's saying, well, it, it doesn't exist in a metric time, in no metric time at all. We can't conceptualize, you know, draw a line and conceptualize that when uh, that point or when does the instant of change take place. It's not possible for us to, to do that. But that's not to deny that it doesn't actually take place. There is an and now of when that tr transition takes place in absolute time. So I hope, I hope that clarifies. Um, so yeah, that's, in a nutshell, that's my interpretation. I hope this was interesting for you guys. Um, you know, obviously it's uh, not totally related to the philosophy of religion, my typical topics and that sort of thing, but um, I figured maybe some of you guys would appreciate this just because it does touch upon the philosophy of time, which was a big part of my own cosmological argument, specifically part two, where I go into detail uh you know three i think it's over three hours or something like that where i discuss the a theory of time versus b theory of time and get into relativity which gets into this distinctions between metric and relative or relative and absolute time and stuff like that so um yeah hope, hope you guys enjoyed but um yeah other than that going forward then the next things i'll be posting will be actually relevant to the to my blog and that sort of thing. So yeah, anyways, hope you guys enjoy and uh, have a great week.